0: I-V-M
1: This is Audio Gyan and I am your host Kedar Nimkar Welcome to a deep dive into the minds of luminaries from the Indian creative world I'm going to start with a slightly filmy dialogue which is uh, in Nagesh Kuknur's film Teen Diware, uh, during the end Juhi Chawla tells Nasruddin Shah that "Zindagi koi khel uh, which can be translated as life is not a game to which he replies which again can be translated as uh, if you look at it from that perspective it's more fun so yeah, talking about games uh, today we have Purnima Sitaraman with us on audio AudioGAN. She's a game designer from Bangalore and first Indian woman to be enlisted in Women in Game Hall of Fame. Currently, she's a director of design at Zynga and ambassador of Women in Games. Purnima is also co-founder of Pinaka Interactive, an independent game design and development studio. Apart from being a visiting faculty at NID in her last 15 years of career, she has worked with like big names and also for big games. So all about that. In fact, she has a very like great work, uh, which, which I'm going to put in the show notes. We'll try and document a few nuances of game design and understand a little bit about what happens in the world of gaming. So welcome, Purnima, to Audio Gan, And it's a real, real pleasure to have you on the show.
0: Thanks, Kedar. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Awesome. So yeah, as I said, like I'm, as I said before, the recording started, I'm not like a gamer. But I'm very curious to know what happens in the world of gaming. Some technical bits, some market sort of understanding and more from a designer's angle. So yeah, if we can start off by you giving us like a quick background at how you got into games and also some big names that you have worked in, what capacity, how did it unfold? I'm sure like I've heard your other podcast and also the TEDx talk. So I'm going to put that. But if you can just like quickly, briefly
0: tell us. Sure. Yeah, so it, it basically, if I have to sum it up, it was purely by chance. Uh, game development, that is, right? So gaming, basically, you know, middle class families, 12th standard, uh, mom and dad had like saved up and brought me a computer so that, you know, I'm going to go into engineering, I need all this prep done. So that's how my introduction to like a home PC happened. And obviously with that, my friend introduced me to games. And that started with like games like Age of Empires 2. Warcraft 3 and of course Road Rash and Zeus and these kind of games right and um, it was very funny because uh, they taught me how to play how to play Age of Empires i learned that pretty quick i really liked it and then i used to we used to go to a land cafe and uh, play it, competing against each other to the point i got really good at it where they used to find it hard to beat me Uh, So it was, you know, it was a very funny take of how the uh, student becomes the master sort of a thing. And um, what it also happened is I started designing my own campaigns in uh, both Age of Empires and uh, Warcraft. So they had custom campaign editors and uh, I used to do that. And I used to send that to some of my friends in college for them who played Age of Empires and, and Warcraft to see what their feedback was. And, you know, just so that I can improve the campaign, make it more fun, make the story better, make the characters appear better, the civilization and all of that. I didn't quite know it was like a part of game design, like modding a game and all of that. Never knew that, right? Like was game development was almost unheard of, like 16, 17 years ago, probably more. And um, so then what happened is, you know, I started really enjoying making these campaigns, getting these feedback. Uh, from all these different people. So that was where it was parked, And maybe I didn't really think too much about it and all of that. Finished engineering. Uh, I did like a .NET course. uh, And uh, then I somehow landed in a job, uh, which one of my college friends recommended me to this company, which happened to be a game development company. I actually went there as a programmer, because after engineering, that's like the most nuanced thing you go into. And uh, there I got the opportunity to kind of delve into game design. They were looking for game designers. And 16, 17 years ago, there are no game designers who exist in India. Mm. And uh, my friend then told them, hey, why don't you give her a shot? Because, you know, she used to do all these campaigns back in college. Maybe she would be interested in this and we don't have to necessarily look outside. And that's what they did. They said, you have one month you have all these Dungeons and Dragons manuals. They were making a role-playing game, which is similar to this popular game called Neverwinter Nights, uh, but for the mobile platform. Uh, so this was a South Korean company, but operating out of Bombay. So yeah, that's pretty much it. I remember opening all these Dungeons and Dragons manuals and just completely like loving it. I was, I was lost in that universe. Like I think whatever I was doing, doing these custom campaigns, this was way more like I could create everything from the ground up. Like it almost felt like you can be that God who can create an entire universe, a world. You can weave everything. You can tell how every object there has to operate and react to different responses. And the fact that someone would play this and have a lot of fun right mm-hmm. uh, so that part really got to me and I think that's where I started loving game design since then it's been a huge part of my life like while I always say different roles producer PM studio head all of that but game design is something I can't let go I just completely fell in love with it
1: okay nice nice so but um, being a player and like cut to then transitioning to like designing a game. So how has your sort of definition of game design even changed over time? Because when you sort of start, you are more into, can I create something? Can I can I sort of uh, make something work from a technical standpoint also and from like aesthetics and other, just putting out work, right? So that's where you start and your definition is more of, can I execute this? And as you grow in your career, as you grow in your sort of the ladder, your definition slightly changes, Sometimes it's about problem solving. Sometimes it's about uh, engagement. So any, any changes that you saw? Uh,
0: Definitely. I think that's part of the growth. Uh, But one clear thing is that between a very large difference between a gamer versus a game developer designer or any aspect of it, right. Is essentially the the key difference of saying that, Hey, this is something I would like versus someone saying that someone said they like this and we need to make that happen right? So that's the very uh, different sides of the same coin, I would say. Like one is the consumer who's telling us this is what they want and the other is the creator who's saying let's take that feedback and implement it or make something that players like this would want to play, right? Like that itself is a persona difference uh, that a game developer has, which is why we say like a game designer needs to be a gamer, but not Hmm. all gamers are game designers, right? So there there is a very different way of thinking that changes when you come into game design. Start mm. thinking about it. And you rightly said, right? When you when you start off, you are thinking more about your super passionate. You're like, I want to make this game. I want to make another GTA. I want to make another Warcraft. That's that's what you you are thinking. But as you get into the nitty-gritty details of it, you realize that it's, it's not going to be an easy job. There are so many things to take. Uh, the way you build the foundation, the layers that you add to it, what are the other problems? Now, when it comes to games like what we make at Zynga, which is live ops or, you know, freemium games, as we say, um, in there, it is like you mentioned, is like, you know, the engagement. It becomes very critical because it's, it's, it's a living game. Like our franchises have lasted like decades of time. Like it, it, has, it has been that long. So how do you keep players engaged for that long? There mm. needs to be something in the game that we're constantly giving making it better, continuously also changing and adapting with our target audience who's playing, because they are also growing as the game grows, right? Mm -hmm. So always tapping into what our players need is a very critical component, irrespective of the kind of game you make. Even if you're making a AAA title, you need to know your audience. If you're making God of War, you need to know who will consume this. And you cannot always rely on only the God of War fans, you need to try and bring new people also to start playing these games, right? Like that's how you grow as a business. So how do you oh. tap into that market? All of these things start to become the problem solving that you talked about, you know, how to get engagement, retention. Uh, then if it is a, you know, a, a freemium game, then what is the conversion rate? How do we monetize these players so that our players who are not paying can also consume the content, but we as a business continue to grow. There's a lot of things in place. Yeah
1: I think I should have done like some 5 episodes ka series only maybe we'll do it sometime it's so fascinating yeah so we'll we'll get into like very nuances of like few things because it's very vast um and i wanted to just start off by like if you can set the landscape right any broad numbers of how grown or how mature is the design is the gaming world ecosystem in india right full time gamers kitne hai, yeah. like how big is the market or are like, what are different types of gamers also? Because for me, like, playing Ludo is also gaming, right? Yeah, you have any numbers or any broad sort of picture which you can paint for us?
0: So, not particularly on full-time or professional gamers, but overall hmm. gamers as a statistics, I think it's anywhere between 400 to 500 million casual gamers that we have in India.
1: Oh, right? okay. Yeah, okay. That's,
0: that's huge because we yeah. also have, like, a great mobile penetration compared to other countries. So so mobile games are like a huge thing, mm. especially in India. And yes, why is Ludo not considered to be a gamer? Right? Like if you if you have heard my talk, you would know I talk about this broad-minded spectrum uh, where I think people are placed, depending on the game, their mood, their persona, their age, everything on mm. anywhere in that spectrum. And that spectrum can range from like you know casual to hardcore. And when I say it is not about the player, it's more about the player equation with the game. Like Mm. I can take something like a Dota, which is considered to be a more, more on the hardcore side of things. I can actually choose to play it very casually. Who's stopping me, right? Mm. I can take a Skyrim or a God of War and just navigate through the game and do nothing, not really care about achievements or beating something. I just want to enjoy the game, right? So that's me taking a AAA considered hardcore title. Well, of course, skill gaps are there. That is one thing that comes part of the game itself. But if I pick that, I as a player can continue to play it casually. And I can take a game like a Candy Crush, right? Or a Farmville and I can play it at a hardcore level. Like I can be crazy about it. Right? Hmm. Tetris, which is one of the you know easiest arcade game which is considered to be the super casual, simple game that existed and has you know, stood the test of times. Today, there are world championships happening for Tetris. Right? Like mm-hmm. The hardcore competitions about who solves it faster. So how is it that something as casual or arcadey as a Tetris can be played at a hardcore level? Right? So I feel like you can pick up a Ludo, you can be a hardcore player of Ludo. Right? You can hmm. pick up a rummy and do that. You can pick up a cricket and do that. And I can pick any of these games and play it at a casual level. So it doesn't matter. We are both consumers of that game. And hmm. hence, we can call ourselves gamers or even players, which is a more generic terminology where you know this elitism of gamers doesn't exist. We are consumers, so we are players. We play a game, we are players.
1: Got it, got it. So when you said 300 to 400 million, it's almost as uh, deep as WhatsApp has penetrated so we can safely say sort of whoever has WhatsApp must have and this is like is there like this is for like last five years or like a generic trend since the mobile penetration has happened
0: it's a trend I think last year it might have been closer to the 300 to 400 range and the expected for 2022 will be hopefully tipping over close to 500 probably Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and this is for mobile you said this is casual casual okay. Across, so it across. can technically include across the board, mm-hmm,
1: uh, mm-hmm.
0: but largely since we are looking at India, the primary consumers will be mobile.
1: Mm, got it, got it. Yeah, so any guesses, like is there any report or anything which is been published to know that these are the statistics and like number of, um, I mean, we need not con- con- like cover this today, but is there any something like that?
0: There should be. I think Google conducts some reviews like that on mobile uh, players. Uh, Unity does that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Statista will definitely have some statistics on it as well. So there'll be bits and parts of these reports. Some could be paid. But generally, these reports should be available.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm interested because even Netflix has launched games. And uh, what I heard was that uh, they have like... The gaming industry has generally... They sort of surpass the the Hollywood thing also. So I'm um, yeah. Anyway, we'll we'll come to that later. So and yeah. So getting much more deeper. Can you share what are the different categories of games for a layman and obviously in the digital world? So this is mainly referring to your TEDx talk. Like, do games always have to be sort of of a particular type or or what are the different types of games?
0: Yeah. There are too many actually. Like right mm-hmm. now the the types are becoming more and more as we speak, because people are coming up with different things. So one is the type of game, then there is the genre of game. There are different things to tackle here, but to give like a very easy summary of it, there's something called hyper casual, which is like, if you can think of the most casual level, like you can pick up and play There's barely any learning curve. You can just immediately play. And it is a very mundane kind of activity that you have to keep doing.
1: It's like candy crush.
0: Candy Crush will come casual. This is even bare bones to it. Okay. So okay. we have Rolic, which has like high heels, which is a Zynga company. Uh, so high heels is basically like you know you just have to simply swipe and collect different heels, and then you you pass. And there's a minimal obstacles in the way. So it's a very simple game, but it's like you know you if you think of it from a perspective like you're so tired after work, you don't want to like consume something that's gonna take a lot of thinking. Uh, and navigating or skill input or hand-eye coordination. You don't want to do that. You want to just pay something that gives you some sort of a dop- dopamine rush kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. So that's where hyper-casuals come in. Like very simplistic, very simple art, nothing, nothing exceptional, but great gameplay, fun gameplay. So that comes as your hyper-casual. Then there is your casual layer, which is where your candy crush and uh, an all come. Even farm will can be considered a social casual layer. So like you can see there are spectrums of it, right? Like casual mm. itself will have a spectrum of what is minimal and what is max, right? Mm. Then you have something called the mid which is like your clash of clans and clash royal and all of that. Uh, then comes your hardcore, which, which is like your God of War or your, uh, you know, Counter-Strike and all of that can come in the hardcore category. Now, again, more or less, many of them have these intersections. So not everyone agrees one thing fits in one place and the other thing fits another. Like that's an argument that no one wants to get into, uh, because everyone has their own way of doing it. But this is an easy way to understand, like a maybe like a difficulty chart of games. So you start here, and then if you like it, you can constantly play, level up, and get there. Much like mm-hmm. you know, game progression in any games. Uh, this is kind of the progression that you would see. And now we have things like hybrid casual, which is in between the hyper casual and the casual margin, right? So we have like some things that is not as engaged as a casual, but not as disengaged as a hyper casual. So they're calling it a hybrid casual game. So these Mm -hmm. mid things keep coming in and which is why it's better to think of everything as a range, like there's an entry range and there's an exit range. And then every, every category has those and you can have games across the spectrum. And then, of course, there's the genre and genres are crazy. You can have any number of genres, like your puzzle game genre, your tycoon genre, your cooking game is a genre, card games are a genre, then sports, you know, shooting, narrative, RPGs, RTS, so many to name there, right? Like, so all of these are like subcategories, like you can have a hyper casual, which is, which is like a puzzle game, right? You can have a casual game that can be like a shooting game. Uh, so, all of that is possible depending on how you marry the genre and the type.
1: Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it can be easily sort of plotted on a 2 by 2 sort of Excel, whatever. Like yeah, And then and, and different games will fall in different buckets as on the spectrum scale also and also on the genre.
0: Except no one's going to agree on one Excel sheet. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it becomes very personal and if they are into deeper stages then it's also challenging and yeah, it it would be interesting. Cool. Let's take a short break here. We'll be right back. Okay. Welcome back to the show. Since you mentioned also about... They are constantly evolving and changing. Uh, But is there a pattern? Because again, uh, I did one interview long time back with Siddharth Rao, uh, who's a founder of Web Chutney, the advertising agency. He mentioned that typically ideas are analog. You have something which you have seen and then it translates. Obviously, with digital becoming so integral part of our life that sometimes the ideas are also digital. But is there any pattern that... People used to play something and now they have just brought it online and, and added more imagination to it. Is there a pattern or it can be purely just self-thought in the digital world itself?
0: It can be both actually. See, I, I would like to believe that anything that we do uh, an inspiration, whether it is conscious or subconscious or unconscious level, it comes from your life experiences. And those life experiences in today's world is largely digital. Uh, Back in our days, it was more analog, right? And Mm -hmm. then we moved into the digital era, right? But today people consume their experiences through a digital medium. So for them, that is like the new analog, I would say, right? Like their consumption of experiences coming through that, right? Uh, like, I remember growing up, we didn't have a TV, like when TV was a new thing, like black and white, and then color, things like that. And today, when you talk about it, they, they can't even correlate it, right? Mm. Today, most, most of the kids are consuming content, either through phone or like their laptops or, you know, tablets. Uh, even though a TV exists, it's it's nothing like, a for us, it was a magical thing when it came out. But for them, it's nothing. It's it's part of their life, right? So Things have changed in those. So they are consuming experiences through all these mediums. And that's what makes it an experience that you consume and then you try to recreate it in your own fashion. And whether that is driven by something of your past, present or what you've heard, anything at the end, I feel everything is like storytelling, Uh, Hmm. whether it was your grandma telling you the story or you read the story, it doesn't matter. But as humans, we love this, right? Like we love that imagination of stories, of the fantasy. And with especially with a medium like games where it is so prominent. And when I say that, I don't necessarily mean that you only have to create story content, right? Like even a match three game like a Candy Crush can have a nice storyline to it. Something mm-hmm. that inspired you. Like maybe candy was something you were obsessed with as a kid and that could have given rise to... Candy Crush or, or something like that. I mean, that's not the story, but mm-hmm. it's very likely, right? Like it could happen for sure. So, yeah, I think it's about experiences that you take these inspirations from and translate that into what you like. And there could be bias. There could be this uh, uh, unconscious bias that we have that what we have consumed, we are trying to emulate that. And sometimes it's just deep creativity, uh, then again, who are we to tell that the creativity is not an unconscious bias? Mm-hmm,
1: very fascinating. In fact, it's giving me like, actually some kick right now to open a game and start playing. <laughs> <laughs> nice.
0: <You laughs> yeah, <should>. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So speaking about this, like the, the you also spoke about the dopamine rush, right? Can you elaborate a bit more about what's the, are there different types of frameworks while making games? And especially I got to know the MDA framework. So if you can elaborate on that and any other sort of framework that typically gaming companies or Zynga uses to design and develop games.
0: Sure. So largely these frameworks are like more, I would say, theory. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it is great when you are learning game design like in a college atmosphere and all, right? I had not learned any of these frameworks when I had started game design, right? It It was pretty much Try it out and figure it out. If it works, it works. And this is going with gut and experience of what you've played as a gamer. And then, you know, something that you've worked on and like what others are feeling. So it's a lot of qualitative feedback that we take, right? But where these frameworks usually help is uh, today to understand what you have done. Like my personal opinion of everything is that, you know, anything that is defined is usually coming from experience. It's not like the definition happened first and then you made it work. It's always the other way around, right? Like you, something happened, people were working on it, someone observed it and said, hey, we can actually categorize this into a framework that's easier to understand and make it happen, right? Mm. But technically, mm. this was in existence. Same with studies, right? Like whatever we are learning, it's not like for us, when we are learning it, we think we are consuming it and getting to learn it and use it. But the chapters were originally created because someone made it happen, and yeah. from there we created those chapters. Right, like it's actually a very nice loop if you think about it. Yeah, right, like yeah. someone makes it happen, you put it in theory, and because you learn the theory, now you can get better at it. Then you contribute and add a layer to it, and then that goes back to the chapters. It's a beautiful feedback loop, much like games.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's just a slightly better articulation every time. Yeah.
0: So MDA is one of the most famous framework that people use. Hmm. Other frameworks are more, I would say, not as global, uh, but it could be at like a very regional or team level of consumption of certain Hmm. mental models, behavioral models and all of that, because games are also a lot about psychology. Uh, There will be certain human uh, behavioral models that the UX team will bring in and we can assess that, find out what kind of player types we have in the game what kind of personas they are, what do they consume, what can we do more in the game to make it better for them, make it more fun for them. So just going back to MBA, it basically is mechanics, dynamics, and aesthetics. And by that, what they want to try and say, it's rules, systems, and fun. Mechanics is your rules. Dynamics is your systems, which is basically the bridge between the fun and the rules. Uh, How the thing responds. Uh, to everything. So that's that's basically the rule set, the fun element that is the output of why people consume. And the system layer is basically that there's a bridge between them. What I like about MDA is, is it's interestingly something that most of us designers who never even knew about the framework used to talk about. Like, mm-hmm. why do people play games? So the most basic question. like Why do you play? Right? And the fun thing is, it's not one answer. We all have different answers. And that answer can again change on how your day has been. If you Mm -hmm. had like a very fun day or not not too much work or anything, how, why you want to play a game changes to when something it's like really hard day and you really want to like, you know, uh, shoot someone in the game. That's a very different perspective to play the game, right? So what the MDA framework's aesthetics, which is a fun element that talks about why people play game, they broke it down to like eight categories and which is like they talk about uh sensation which is your uh, you know game as a sense pleasure it affects any of your senses and now with vr touch is also a sensor right so then it is fantasy which is game as a make believe so you can actually be a werewolf uh, you can be a mafia lord uh, you can be uh, an animal uh, you can be a king anything is possible in that world so mm. fantasy game as a make believe then game as a drama which as humans we love storytelling and all of that to consume like oh my god what happens next like, oh, might my, my, this action actually change the course of this story and all of that? So that also is very exciting. Then Challenge, which is game as an obstacle course, which is like your Super Mario and all of that, which is pure challenge obstacle course. is like you're having a lot of fun. And of course, Fall Guys, which is the more famous recent one, which is a complete obstacle course anyway. Then Fellowship, which is game as a social framework. So that can be competitive, cooperative, philanthropic, any of it. So... Replicating whatever we do in a social network in real life. Uh, How do we emulate that in games? Uh, And also to find like-minded people, right? Like most of us, we have these friends who are game friends because we have similar interests in terms of how we consume and we are passionate about that particular game. So that ecosystem also starts forming and really helping. Then, of course, your game as a discovery or uncharted territory, like you're, you're trying to explore something finding something new, learning something new. So that also happens. So this is personally also, I got into Greek mythology because I played a game called Zeus. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I learned more about Greek mythology through that game than I would ever read and consume, right? So for me, that was great. Like, you know, it's a new thing to learn. and I played the game and I was discovering all of this. It was a very fun exploration for me, right? Then is game as an expression, which is personalization, customization, how do I represent myself in the game? Uh, yeah. And how do others see me in that game? Right? Like that is also a very personal aspect for people. And it has really helped a lot of introverts. Most gamers are introverts. Nowadays, it's getting better with streamers and all coming in on the other side. But game developers, gamers are like a good portion of them are introverts. And games actually help them. Right? Mm-hmm. Like most people undermine the importance of it. But it has helped me. It has helped people like me and even more introverts than me uh, to enable to come out and express themselves in that game ecosystem, in that language. Right. And then the last is game as submission, as a pastime. This is the most mm-hmm. simplest of things. Like, what do you, I'm bored. I'll just play something. Right. Like it's, it's as simple as that. And it can be more, this is just eight that they have marked and, it can be a mix of any of that it can be something derivative out of it or you can find a ninth one that is not listed and it's possible the framework itself says that because fun is so subjective it's yeah. the definition of fun itself is like that like if someone says we need to make a game fun it is like what is fun fun can never be defined it's it's different for everyone someone likes going out is fun someone loves to stay in is fun so how do we cater to both that parties so, which is where the user personas can come in and all of that can factor. But generally, this is what the framework talks about and focuses on why people play because everything else we can derive from that.
1: Hmm. Very interesting. And and is this like sort of, yeah, as you said, it's a theory, but is this like a standard framework followed across? I mean, in in... Interviews, we have this STAR framework, right? Situation and sort of. So it's practiced mostly by every company. Where I say like this MDA framework is practiced in majority of the companies or there are like other evolutions and nuances which are
0: there? Internal ones. So this, this is actually still a very generic framework. Okay. Uh, when it comes to like you're focusing more on a particular games challenge and what it is, then you usually have a more internalized Thing. So I, one of my directors of design, Vimal, and I had done this uh, talk called uh, D7 via Seven Designs, uh, which is getting, to, getting players to uh, retain for seven days uh, using seven design principles. Right? So oh. certain things, So everyone has their own model of working. So while this is like a theory from where everyone derives it, of, there is also Bartles player type, which is another like talking about different player types that exist in your game. And from there, people derive and make their own version of it, which are usually subject and kept within companies of what mental model they use. Mm. Uh, There you can actually, you know, explore and figure out and change. But like I said, every company, depending on the game type, the game genre, this varies. Mm. So so it's it's all separate. Uh, There might be companies who use this exactly. Uh, There might be companies which are like doing a mashup of it and personalized to their game experience.
1: Got it. This seven number seems to be interesting because I think Facebook also started with this seven model, right? Make make seven friends in like first day and you have that sort of yeah flywheel happening. Cool. Yeah, coming to like a bit more psychological aspect of it, uh, from your experience, um, at least in, in the world which we are in, the digital world, there are certain metrics and success criteria... That uh, everyone works towards. And especially, again, it could be a layman understanding. But for game designers, I'm assuming like it would be sort of engagement. Uh, it would be sort of time spent. I don't know, hourly active users versus weekly active users. So those sort of metrics that you guys would be working towards. Now, how do you balance? Maybe you can give a like, couple of metrics that you generally sort of follow. And then how do you balance with this sort of narrative key games are addictive. So how do you balance it out?
0: Yeah, so I'll get to both these parts separately. Okay. Like <laughs> the, the metrics uh, that we look at, uh, especially in, in free to play games, it's usually your daily active users, weekly active users and monthly active users. Right. So that defines like how, how, like, how many users you're getting, how many of them are coming back and all of that. Uh, what it also gives us is retention retention is the most core important thing that as designers we look at so anywhere from like d1 retention to d180 retention so anyone who installed the game today are they coming back the next day or have they come back in in say 7 days right so we are just seeing that if they are keeping to going to come back to the game right uh, it's it's okay if they don't come constantly that's not the intention that's why these these things are uh, measured in ranges so I'm mm-hmm. not going to check like D1, D2, D3, D4. Like, are you continuously coming back? No. Seeing D1, D7, D15, D30, D60, like that, right? So we're checking it in intervals. And that's because we know there is no way people can keep coming back. But what we want to see is that can you keep coming back to the game occasionally and continue to play? Like, these are games that you can play for a long time. It's not There is no pressure to finish everything today, except there are some events and all that might be time boxed, but other than that, you can pace it at your own level, right? Like whatever is your interest. And then of course we have a word, like, which is a more business driven thing is your monetization numbers. Like what's the money we made out of this, right? Like, and mm. that can be your ad monetization, in-app purchases, all of that possible. So these are your high level metrics where as a designer, the engagement metrics, which is your retention is, becomes a very core you know, important thing of validation of whether they understood your mechanics. Do they like the kind of meta that you have given or the story that you have given? Where are they dropping off? What they like, what they don't like? And then getting into those kind of details of the player journey to see whether they where they dropped off, what they liked, did they come back and all of that. So that's the interesting uh, component that we keep track of in terms of metrics. Because mm-hmm. there's like way more details on the metrics side of things, but, but this is the high level aspect of it. No. On the addiction component, now that's an interesting one, right? So, uh, in fact, just today, we were discussing uh, something along the lines where uh, Riot had put out this player dynamics model, uh, which is basically about creating this very sustainable, diverse, ethical uh, game development or games in practice to make sure that... So, no game designer's intent is to create this kind of crazy addiction. See, addiction mm-hmm. is good. Everything in its own quantity or range. Moderation. Yeah, yeah. that moderation is needed, right? So if anything goes beyond that threshold, that's bad. And that's true of anything, right? Same, Mm. so alcohol exists, we drink. But if you drink more than the necessary threshold, that's addiction, right? So it's the same thing as games. There's nothing new. Like games are usually centered because it's more interactive. Uh, And also it's much easier to blame games when you don't know anything about it, right? So so they'll be like, oh, what about game addiction? So my question usually to them is, yes, the extremes are bad and that needs to be taken care of. And that could stem from a lot of different reasons. There was uh, like, you know, there has been cases of violence, which is usually associated with games. And uh, then I read one story, I don't know when, but someone... Um, I think killed or wounded a particular waiter uh, because his tissue that was served in the hotel was dirty. Mm. Right? So he snapped and, you know, they, he uh, hurt the waiter or murdered. I'm not sure. So I'm like, so where, like the games did not play any role there, right? Mm. So violence exists. Here, sometimes it happens to be a gamer who is using that violence for some other reason. It's a psychological issue. Then a game issue. Yeah,
1: it's 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 correlation and not causation. It's, it's yeah, yeah.
0: Correct, right? But I'm not averse to saying that games are not addictive. Games definitely are because it is giving you this constant, you know, the adrenaline and the dopamine rush is constantly happening, right? Mm-hmm. So you are pumped up and then you do something that activity gives you a dopamine rush, you feel happy and you're excited to do that activity again, right? So... It's the same as people getting hooked to gymming as they call it, right? Like, so how is it any different? It's another medium where something that you like has happened and because of it, you keep going back to it. And largely, the addiction, when it comes to say kids or teens and all of them, which is, which is where this concern comes through, right? With adults, they're like, you earn your money, you do whatever. It's fine. (laughs) But uh, with kids and teens is where the concern comes. So, here, what happens is general notion that parents also bring is that it's not good for you. I will not let you play. Right. And, you know, psychology of kids is that the more you tell them, don't do something they want to do. It, right. And the other aspect is, you know, and in the, from the MDA framework, I mentioned about fellowship, which is about finding like-minded people. Right. Mm. And for kids, this becomes very critical. They actually find like-minded people or it is something that makes them fit in is through these games. And we are not able to see that or understand that. And we think you're always wasting time, right? Uh, There was a time when playing outside was considered waste of time. Today we have cricket academies and football academies and badminton academies. and It's going to be a matter of time. It's already started. It's, It's just going to be maybe another decade when you will have you know, game training academies, which still exist today. And people will be putting people there. And then games will not be talked about as addiction anymore. Right? It's, it's mm-hmm. just a matter of us learning and unlearning certain things. But as kids, putting that time. Uh, so I do this with my sister. So my nephew loves gaming. My sister doesn't understand anything about games. So we have a deal. My thing is that I am okay putting a time box. He loves to play games. You tell him that he has to finish all his homework, everything, uh, you know, whatever is needed for the school and academia, but you're going to assign some time for him to play whatever he wants to play that is age appropriate. right? Mm-hmm. And let him play, let him enjoy and sometimes even participate in what he's playing and understand why he plays it. Like what if, and he plays some of these games really well. Like he loves to voice over and say what he's doing and all. I said, why don't you just consume? What he's trying to do, he's he's trying to speak in his own language with everyone else. You just don't know the language. That's the problem. So try learning that language. It's okay if you don't participate, but at least try to understand, right? So if you build that reputation, if you build that rapport with your kids, you can easily tell them when it is getting too harmful, right? Like this intervention we do as adults, when someone goes into the extreme of an addiction, can be done with kids, but you need to be their friend. You cannot be their mother or father who's like telling aggressively, like you're doing wrong constantly. Because the more you say that, the more they are going to want to do it. So if you think about it, it is all about just psychology and much less about gaming.
1: Correct. Correct. Yeah. And but when you said that you have to really find a balance uh, and when we have seen Instagram and TikTok and other apps sort of yeah, you you spend almost four hours also sometimes, right? In fact, mobile itself, I think I was reading somewhere like a uh, average US citizen opens like a phone 800 times a day. So like as these defending these decisions and practicing certain ethical stuff, is it like a core responsibility of a designer? Or, or it's a, obviously company as a large, they can, but you know the dynamics, right? There is there is monetization, there is uh, there are numbers that are sort of promised to the investors. So where do you sort of, like designers, do they put their foot down or how does it happen?
0: It does, it does, right? Like, so designers do put their foot down and saying that when it is going overboard, like everything, like I said, has a threshold. Like if you think about most free-to-play games, What we also try today is like, say, your crop will only harvest in, say, four hours, right? The only way you can eliminate that four hours is by paying for it. Like, that's how monetization lever works, right? Mm. But technically, four hours is the wait time. What we are saying is, don't come back to the game for four hours, come back after four hours, right? Or do something meanwhile and then come back, visit us after four hours when your crops are ready to harvest, right? Now, you may want to pay for an immediate need. But how much would you pay? It's not like you can keep paying forever, right? So this monetization that people kind of hate, like, oh, they keep asking for money everywhere. If you think about it, these are actually very ethically placed game design constraints because we know you don't have like an endless bag of money where you can keep paying for it, right? So we are putting it strategically saying that, oh, this is going to cost you so much to actually, if you want to, you know, purchase this right now and harvest the crops right now. And uh, that's why we don't have too many people who will continue to pay. Mm. Right? And that is a balance. What is frowned upon is actually in place to make sure we are doing ethical game design.
1: Wow. Mm. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. (laughs) Uh, Cool. I can keep going on and on. I'm very sort of curious, but... uh... In the interest of time, I think we'll rush through like last four. Uh, and and yeah, definitely would like to have you again to go deeper into certain aspects. I have last four questions, which is um, any pattern sort of uh, you have seen that these sort of games work better? Yeah, actually, this can be skipped because you said there is so many spectrums that uh, for a casual gamer, like a lightweight game might just click on the charts and... For certain geographies. Yeah, yeah. so maybe yeah, I got the answer. Maybe we can skip it. Cool. So I've also seen a lot of companies these days are using gamification for referrals and other sort of other sort of activation techniques. Um, and I, in my opinion, I think there's a huge difference between game and gamification. Like, can you shed some light on it? Like, are there games that you designed who have sort of enabled certain discovery or activation of certain products, but not really sort of game game type.
0: Yeah, there is actually. So the key depend change would, I would say, like, in fact, we can think about three things. One is games. Uh, then is we can talk about branded games, right? Like which games are made to promote a particular brand or raise awareness of a particular brand. And the third one is your gamification, which is what you spoke about. It can be implemented across any kind of category, uh, real estate, uh, your, uh, you know, company, any of that. Right. So, yeah, (laughs) exactly. They, They do that. Right. Yeah. So now the main difference here is, so in games, that is just one component. Like we are saying, Hey, if you do this activity and you reach this particular progress, we give you a reward, right. Gamification has taken only that component of it and translated here, right? Mm. The interactivity part of a game where you are doing something in in gamification that is associated with your real world activity, right? You're you're saying, if I have five tasks today, I've completed all these five tasks, I'm going to get something. And that's what games do too. But in games, it's actually interactivity that you're doing with a digital medium. Here, these five tasks are part of your work or something else, right? Like I am doing, okay, I need five documents to be done today, I've done that. My points increase and I'm better on the leaderboard, right? So they are using your real life as the replacement of that interactivity that you have with the digital medium and using that same reward mechanism, which is a great driver to again give that kind of dopamine rush, that competitive edge, all that thing that clicks for games. They've taken that component and used it in gamification. Now, in case of a branded game, which is where clearly it is motivated to raise awareness or get people to visit a brand or buy something and all, those are custom-made games. And there the interactions can be as deep as an entire game or it can be as minimal. We have done, like, I think Farmville once had uh, an association with uh, McDonald's. Mm. And, uh, mm. you know, like, we had that, like, Farmville one times. And uh, that kind of, like, you know, you can get something special if you, and you can have both relations, right? Like you play the game and you get some vouchers of McDonald's, or you go there and then you may get some something about farm bills. So it can be like both ways, uh, driving engagement for both parties kind of thing. So that again, we do that in many games, we actually end up doing it. So that also continues to happen.
1: Okay, got it, got it. Cool. Uh, I think I'm going to come to the second last question, which uh, I think a lot of people would, might be like looking forward to because it's a more practical sort of a question which is in, in again UI UX uh, where I work it's mainly that happens is that I, I design something in Figma or some say Photoshop or somewhere in Sketch and um, typically it's coded by front-end engineers right how does it happen you have a game design and a development studio so how can one become a game designer? Can it's tough for me to understand that what sort of tools are there or like how do you create, like what do you do in that, like Photoshop as an ID, similarly is there something like that. And then you also spoke about there are so many fields which open up, which is like your render, your light effects, and then your sound design. So if you can give like a very broad landscape and, and then how does design and development go hand in hand?
0: Sure. So gaming, I think, is this one of these brilliant industries where if you think of a particular role, it exists. Right? It may not exist in each game development company, but in the industry, you will have that, right? You have actors, you have voiceover artists, you have marketing, community, customer support, uh, user acquisition, then like, you know, your admin, HR, IT, all of that anyway comes in. And then comes the core game development, right? Like, so, but there are so many adjacent things and if you look at a larger studio, they'll have so much bifurcations of it, like breakdown of each and everything specialist. There is like a, a hair texture specialist. That's just They just do that. They just do hair specialization. And then there's like a, a you know, a, a fabric specialist who will do only fabric in the game. It it's, it's exists. It may not oh. exist for one company, but if you look at the industry, that is a niche set of things that is required for certain kind of games, right? So it's, it's it's I always say, like, gaming industry is, like, you think of any role, it exists. Uh, what you need to know, game design is the most tricky thing. See, most others, you can say, oh, if you're doing 2D art, 3D art, animation, there's very clear definition of what you need to learn and all of that. Game design is tricky because there is no IDE. Unlike, like, you, can, you can't say, oh, you practice Unity or Unreal and all. No, it doesn't exist. Game design is usually done in a Word document or a PPT. Oh, okay. wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's basically that. That's, uh, however, you need to know a lot of things. You need to know how to do like a flow diagram. You can use anything. right? A lot of my designers actually use Figma and uh, talk about how the user will go from here to there. You need to know math because there's been a lot of game balancing, tuning for damage equations. You need to know how AIs will respond. There is so many of it. All this will go into a document but you need to know the entire framework, the entire algorithm. Basically, you're going to define the entire skeletal system of what that game is going to be right from every small step. And then you're going to build it from the skeleton to the entire body, right? And each of those layers is where you are getting the other discipline in to put that in for you. But you need to know how those layers work and where they're going to merge, because otherwise, it is not going to be executed properly. So while most people think game design is easy and we do get a lot of opinions because game design is basically people attributed to idea. You know, you are the idea guy, you're the idea person, whatever, but that's not it. Game design is about taking an idea and making it into a game. And that part, only few people can do, right? Ideas are dozen. everyone can give ideas. We have taken ideas from others that we may not have got, but not everyone has the capability of taking it and making it. Right? You need to break it down to the nitty-gritty details. Like game design is about saying that if I press this arrow button, how many units should this character move? And what should be like the animation look and feel of how it should actually move? Right? And when I press that arrow button, what is the speed? What kind of physics should act on it? All of this has to be defined. While the animation is done by art, The physics is done by the developer. You are telling them, you're guiding them, saying, this is the experience overall that I want and I'm expecting from this character. And that's just for character moving in one direction. So when you're making that entire game, you can imagine what all goes into it. So you need to know your physics, you need to know your math. You need to be good at communication. You're going to interact with a lot of people. You need to have a good visual understanding. You need to have a good UX experience understanding. You need to have a good knack for knowing that this kind of sound would work here. That kind of sound would work here. You basically will be like managing the whole thing. Like that's your baby and you're creating it. But you need all of these disciplines to align with you to actually create it. Hmm.
1: You are into classical music as well,
0: right? Yeah. I mean, I've not (laughs) learned it, but I am.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think it seems to be simpler right now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's very similar, actually. I did an entire talk on how classical music and games can coordinate.
1: Yeah. Wow. Wow. My mom is so... Yeah. Plus QAs, right? Um, Yes. Yeah.
0: They have the hardest job. Like You know, they think like, you know, outside of it, they'll be like, Oh, wow, your job is all about playing games every day. My goodness, they have the hardest job, like they have to find everything again and again, like keep playing it again and again. So you're not playing it for the fun of it anymore. You're trying to break it. You're trying to find every possible scenario so that the players will not have to face that so that you can resolve it before it goes to them. Yeah.
1: To conclude, like any top five games that you love and any tips and tricks because I have I have a nephew who wanted he he was in ninth and he used to play continuously and at the same time I had happened to visit Hyderabad, where uh, there was like some big gaming setup happening and I went came back and I said what do you want to do after tenth and he said uh, I think commerce and I said why you love like I see you just playing why don't you try that and he said uh, because there was no ecosystem uh, and and obviously family, uh, uh, yeah, you know, sort of, yeah, the social circle that you live in were not exposed. So, he couldn't fathom that. But, um, maybe a few listeners can gather some inspiration. So, yeah, would love to know your five favorite games and any tips for listeners to get deep into this rather than just pure entertainment. Yeah. I mean, sure. that's also fine, but yeah, still.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. I'll talk about my all-time favorite is Age of Empires 2. Like, I think I attribute everything to that game, my interest to my career. So uh, that and Warcraft 3. However, both of these games are old, but you can play like more World of Warcraft, which is a more recent version of it. And also the Age of Empires, uh, you know, the HD version has come come out. That's also something. But on more somewhat recent, I would say, play Gris, which is a lovely game. It actually takes you through the five stages of, uh, uh, you know, grief. It's brilliant. It's great mechanic. It's aesthetically brilliant. And so I would definitely recommend that. Then there's another game called Journey, which again is all about experience. And my, my most of my suggestions are going to come this way because I am now at an age where I love this kind of experiential games. Mm. Uh, so that's really fun. And uh, along with that, I would also recommend this game called Florence which is on mobile, which is a very simple game and it's purely narrative, I would say. But what I love about it is its simplicity. There's no very exceptional mechanics, uh, no skill level challenges. It's about consuming a story with minimal interactivity and you still feel very engaged with it. And I feel these are like very easy places for people to start if you are not really into games. But you want to experience games for, the experience it offers, right? Rather than necessarily the skill set. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, uh, our game, which is Farmville, uh, definitely do check it out.
1: Yes, yes. I'll I'll plug in here. My favorite game is, was rather, was Sim City. Yeah, and then Angry Birds. Directly, I came to Angry Birds and yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've bought it also many times. <laughs> cool. cool. Yeah, and any sort of concluding words of wisdom or, or any inspiration sort of for people to get into game design.
0: Yeah, I would say, see, don't worry about academics in the sense, you don't need to learn a game design course to be a game designer. Half the time, we don't even look at what your education was. I mean, we expect you to be a graduate and finish with your studies because that shows some level of commitment, except if you're like extraordinarily great. We don't mind that also. Right. Mm what we look at is the passion. And when when I say passion, it is, a lot of people misinterpret it as like, I play a lot of games. I wanna get into gaming, right? Like I wanna get into the gaming industry. But you need to understand, can you break it down? Like what aspect of gaming do you wanna get into? Like I usually get a lot of these questions like, oh, you wanna get into gaming? I've been playing games, games are my life. Like, yeah, great. But you need to understand, especially today, like if this was the same impression 20 years ago, understandable because you had no idea what to do. But today there's a lot of, you know, information out there. Where they're mm. talking about different disciplines. So first you need to understand what each of these disciplines do and where your talent lies and where you want to build, what are the gaps you want to fix, how you can get better at it. And the easiest way to do that is participate in a game jam. You know, there are so many free game jams that are out there. You don't need to pay any money. You can do it online. Participate with people. Understand what it is to be like making a game the best way of becoming a game designer or a game developer or the only way is to make a game make a game on your own with your own team on your own however you want to do it but make a game doesn't matter if it is bad that's totally fine but you need to understand what it takes to make a game because Mm. you know as much as fun it is from the outside it is a lot of sweat and blood that we go through Absolutely. Right. And you need to sign up for it. You need to know what it is in it. And then you love it. And then you come, you will stay forever. Right. If you are just looking at it from the outside of it because it looks very nice, we want to get in there. It's it's everyone is talking about it. Then it's probably not. You you will not last long. You will not work out here. And that's for your own good. We are not trying to push you away. We are trying mm-hmm. to warn you because you need to have some set of mindset that with which you come in. And that will—that that is what will take you into better. Like, you need to get better at your career. You cannot just come in and just get stagnated. And mm. that's what we say. Like, always be open to learning. Do games. Do game jams. Understand what is your skill gap. Fix it. There are a lot of online articles, YouTube channels, videos, courses, everything that's available for free of cost. Do that and figure out whether you really like it. right? Because no gaming studios care about whether you had a game design graduation or not. Of course, there are some advantages that come with it where you know, most of your theory is validated.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm not
0: saying it doesn't happen. I personally did not come from game design background. And then actually, I would say easily 50% of our game designers right now in Zynga, easily 50% are not from game design backgrounds. Hmm. And they're all like really good game designers. We, I would say we are very well balanced that way. And most companies are open to taking that. So don't limit yourselves by saying, I didn't do the course. That's why I couldn't get it. No, that's not true. You can still apply. You can still try. But make sure you're skilled yourself enough. And the only way to do that is by making games.
1: So true. So true. In fact, yeah. Even when I, like, I'm hiring, I say that you need not be a MFA or a BFA. You just have to like write a good case study which has solved a problem. And if you have really put out, put it out and measured it, I think that's 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 enough for you to sort of um, get screened at least. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. I mean, the portfolio speaks, right? Like there are people who have great academia and great percentages, but their portfolio is nothing. Then mm. what will I do with it? And then there are people who have amazing portfolios. I would rather talk to that person. Yeah, yeah. All
1: right, I think we'll conclude this episode on this note. Obviously, there are many, many more questions which I'll uh, nag you for offline. But uh, once again, like very, very thanks for being on the show. Uh, it was a great learning experience and thank you for doing this.
0: Thank you, Keda. It was really, really fun to be here. Thanks for this
2: conversation.
1: And that's it from today's GAN session. For show notes and more GAN, visit audiogan.com. If you like this podcast, Please don't forget to check our other interesting podcast on IVM Network. You can listen to us on IVM Podcast app, ivmpodcast.com or any of your favorite podcasting apps. To stay tuned, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ivmpodcast. And if you wish to connect with me, I am at Moments on Instagram. Until then, take care.
2: It's been a great week on the IVM Podcast Network! On this round is on me, Gauri is joined by Shweta Nanda. They talk about the financial independence and how it is to be a woman entrepreneur. On Anish thing Anish welcomes ultra-marathon runner Shivani Gharat. Shivani shares her journey of how she ran her first marathon, the mindset of a runner, and what it actually takes to run a full marathon. On Cock and Bull, Cyrus, Naveen, Akash, and Shreyas talk about the Korean band BTS serving in the military and its repercussions. On Think Fast, Varun and Suchita discuss Wing Greens and their latest acquisitions and about the Indian sexual wellness market. And on Shuni 1, Sheila Ditya is joined by Dinika Bhatia, CEO and founder of Nutty Grities. They talk about coming from a business family and Dinika's journey in creating healthy and guilt-free snacking. Once again, don't forget to visit our merch store on ivmpodcasts.com. We have some exciting new merch out there for you. Also, do follow us on social media. We are IBM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And do remember to spread the word about these shows and any other shows you might be listening to. Appreciate them, rate them, and review them wherever you are listening to them. You can also check out all our other shows on youtube.com slash Podcasts. And finally, we would like to thank our sponsors this week. Volvo XC40 Recharge, Bumble, Heads Up for Tails, Kotak Privy League Programme, And HDFC Mutual Fund. Thanks, guys. Without you, this would not be possible. Do you often find yourself surrounded by conversations about Web3, blockchain, NFTs, DAOs? What are these terms, and how do they affect our future on the internet? So many questions, but don't worry, we've got answers to all your questions. Hi, I'm Iklavya Bhattacharya, and on our show, Future Proofing, we try to decode the impact of these future technologies on various industries with experts and tech enthusiasts. Tune into new episodes coming out every Thursday on the IBM Podcast app and the website, or wherever you get your podcasts from.